Thank you, Nell. If you would turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, our deacons are going to head up the aisle. Kurt and Will will collect any uh, prayer slips or visitor's information if you'd like to uh, pass that in, and we appreciate that very much. Among those in the court of Alexander the Great was a philosopher. That's a Greek thing, I guess. I can't imagine <laughs> traveling across, conquering the known world and bringing a philosopher along with you. Um, but he was of, of outstanding ability and little money. And he asked Alexander the Great for financial help. And he was told by Alexander to draw whatever he needed from the imperial treasury. But when he went, he requested an amount equal in today's terms to about $50,000. And he was refused, the treasurer wanting to verify that he was authorized to make such a large, uh, such a large withdrawal. And when Alexander was asked about this, he replied, pay the money at once. The philosopher has done me a singular honor by making a large request. He has shown that he has understood both my wealth and my generosity. Think for a moment about the things that we pray and ask God for. Many times we allow our requests to be limited in their size and their scope. We pray for the needs of the day, the needs of the hour, or even the moment, in other words, the fires that are closest to us right now. And certainly um, we should do that. But we would do well to remember the lessons of Alexander's generosity as well. How much more wealthy is our Lord than Alexander? How much more generous? How much greater is his ability to meet all kinds of needs uh, for our, our lives than Alexander? Additionally, we tend to focus our prayers on temporal things. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. But when I think about my prayers, even this morning, when I think about my prayers over the last week, I see prayers for provision, for healing, for opportunity, for success. Nothing wrong with praying for all those things. And after all, there's no one more able to give those things than God and no one who can be trusted more to discern what is best for us when we ask for those things. But we should allow ourselves to be taught to pray by the scripture. And the scripture tells us that we should be praying for spiritual things, for kingdom interests rather than for worldly interests alone, for eternal things rather than for temporal things. Of our prayers, D.A. Carson wrote, we must ask ourselves how far the petitions we commonly present to God are in line with what Paul prays for. Suppose, for example, that 80 or 90% of our petitions ask God for good health or recovery from illness or safety on the road or a good job, success in exams, the emotional needs of ourselves and our families, success in our mortgage application, and much more of the same. How much of Paul's praying revolves around the equivalent items or equivalent terms? If the center of our praying is far removed from the center of Paul's praying, then even our very prayers may serve to show how worldly we have actually become in our thinking. This morning, we're going to look at some of the things that Paul prayed for for the church at Colossae. And I think there are two angles that we need to view this passage from that will give us two distinct applications. One is the context. Who is he praying for? Who is he writing this prayer, writing this letter and prayer to? And why? Why is he doing that 
uh, in particular. And then secondly, to look at the actual content of his prayer and look uh, for what he is praying for for those people. I think that'll give us two uh, very significant things for us to think about. So first, lessons from the context. Lessons from the context of Paul's prayer. It would be a very significant moment to receive a letter from the Apostle Paul. Even though he wrote many, and we don't suspect for a moment that we have all of them uh, gathered together here uh, in, in the scriptural record, there may have been quite a few more. Uh, we know of, of, of many for sure, but there may be even more than we know of. Um, but with all that was going on in the world of early Christianity, it's hard to imagine a place like Colossae even being on Paul's radar. It was very small. By comparison, uh, or contrast rather, Paul wrote to the Romans because they were in one of the most strategic locations uh, imaginable. Paul wanted to go there and teach, but was hindered from doing so, and so he wrote them a letter instead. Colossae, on the other hand, was, in the world's eyes at least, utterly insignificant. It's the smallest place to which Paul sent a letter. So what could be significant enough in Colossae to merit a letter? Well, Epaphras, probably the founder of the church at Colossae, has brought a report to Paul. And while most of the news is good, he also reports that there is false teaching. There's false teaching going on in that little church, in that little community. And that is what gets the attention of the apostle and provides the occasion for this prayer and for this letter. So some might have said, Paul, there are about a hundred other places that would be more significant. Way better investment of your time and your effort. But Paul understood that the problem was um, false teaching. And even in a small place like Colossae, that is a significant problem. It wasn't that the place was super important. It's that the problem was super important. And so he addressed it immediately. I'm not sure that we think like that a lot of a lot of times and in a lot of ways. I'm not sure we keep such a watchful eye on the things that we're saying and thinking. Uh, the doctrine in the church at large uh, in our society and I don't know that we know how to respond to it the way Paul did. So while Paul treated this false teaching out in the middle of nowhere as a huge problem that demanded an immediate response and much prayer, we for any number of reasons don't tend to respond to that um, very well at all, not by confronting error and not by praying for those who are affected by it. And we live in a world where those little tweaks, and I would say just a little tweak to God's truth, bears out a false teaching. Those alterations to God's truth, we live in a world where they travel at the speed of light. And so it's so important that we pray about these things and address them. So the first thing that we learn that Paul is praying for, he's praying for spiritual things. He's praying for things like doctrine and discernment and wisdom. Just think of, of what it would be like to hear Paul address them and say, I'm really praying that you have a great day today. That's, that's not what Paul is doing. He's, he's praying for their discernment. He's praying for their ability to stand. He's praying for them to be firmly rooted in the truth of God's word. So that's the first thing that we learn. We, we, pray, we learn that Paul's praying for spiritual things for these people. Another lesson that we learn is that Paul is praying uh, for Christians that he's never met. 
That's kind of different than the way we pray, isn't it? We tend to pray for the things that are right here, the things that we see and feel and hear in the most immediate sense. Paul is focused on a completely different part of the world than where he is. So he understood that the battle these Christians were engaged in was very important, perhaps more important than the people and places around him at the moment that he was experiencing more immediately and intimately. Do you think and pray that way? If we analyze the things that you pray for, what would they tell us about what you really think is important? Are you praying for the persecuted church? Are are you praying for uh, pastors and congregations that are being arrested and held hostage by their government? Are you praying for believers under genocide in places like Sudan? Are are you praying for those who are being uh, held and killed by terrorists? Or are your prayers limited to that which you see and hear in front of you? And understand, I'm arrested by these same thoughts about the things that I spend my time praying for. So we're tempted, I think, more often to pray for things like dealing with an angry boss or a relative with a cold or a friend with a difficult child. And those are things worthy of our prayers. We just shouldn't stop there. We should let Paul's prayers in the New Testament, and particularly here in this passage in Colossians, inform us that there's more we could be praying for. There's more. And there's uh, much more energy that can be invested in lifting these needs up uh, beyond what is immediate uh, to our contest. So that's the second thing that we should learn, that we should be praying bigger and wider and farther than the immediate, past the tyranny of what's right now and right here. Thirdly, Paul says that he's praying without ceasing. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He's following the same advice that he gave the Thessalonians, pray without ceasing. And he's mentioning it here. He's giving us some insight into what that looks like. He's not brought all the other activities of the day to a halt and committed to 24-hour prayer meetings and, and nothing else going on. That's not what he's doing. Nor is he only praying for the Colossians, but he's made a commitment to pray for them very significantly. So again, I would ask, do you pray this way? Do you have things that you've committed to, to intercede for on a routine basis? Is there, is there any routine to your prayer? Not dead mechanical habit devoid of the Spirit's leadership, but is prayer part of your daily routine? Is it a part of your life in a routine way? Do you maintain some sort of organization that informs your prayer? I remember... Um, when Don Whitney came uh, and led us in some uh, in a in a pastoral uh, visit, uh, he he led our our pastors retreat, and we were we were talking with him about spiritual gifts. Um, and, you know, I think I held Don Whitney in this idea of you know here's the spiritual guru who's going to come tell us how to do spiritual life. And I remember him saying, "Isn't prayer boring?" And I just wow, can you say that? Is that okay? And Whitney elaborated a little bit and said that we need to let the scriptures inform our prayers because we will fall into routine that's not helpful. We'll fall into the kind of routines where, yes, prayer is boring. We're praying for the same things and people that we prayed for yesterday and the day before that and the week before that and the month before that. Boy, it's hard to feel spiritual when that's what we're doing, isn't it? But if we'll let the word of God inform our prayers, we begin to see that there are more things to pray for. There are different ways to come at those things that we need to to pray for, and it brings life to our prayers. So not a dead routine, but a living one, and something that sort of governs and informs the way that we pray. If you told someone that you were going to pray for them, what does that actually mean? 
What would that mean anything to them at all? And would it mean anything for you? Have you written it down? Have you carried it with you? Are you, are you committing to pray for a, a day or just if you happen to think of it? Or are you, really, are you really addressing that need before the throne of God over and over again in some committed way? So this final thing that we learn from the context of Paul's prayer is that we should pray with commitment, that we should pray without ceasing. So those are some of the things that we can just very quickly learn from the context. This is who Paul is praying for. This is what is going on in their lives and why he is praying for them. But let's look at the content of Paul's prayer a little more deeply and talk about the things that we can pull from that. So as we look at this passage of scripture, what are the things that Paul specifically prays? He prays for things that are of spiritual worth. He mentions a number of individual things here, and when we read it through in the English Bible, it's a bit of a run-on, it's a bit of a a cluttered, kind of a a rambling look, but Paul isn't rambling. Uh, There is some order here, but it really is one long sentence in the Greek. And it, when you read in the, in the English uh, translations, you can see that uh, the translators, the interpreters have done to you some favors. They've used a lot of punctuation to try and help you out here, right? There's colons and commas and semicolons and hyphens, and they're really trying to break this thing up into something that's manageable in, in, in the English. Um, and so um, we can, we can kind of learn from that and see if we can make some order uh, out of it. So Paul's really making one main request here for one main purpose and then giving some explanation of what it should look like. So let's see if we can structure this long sentence in in that way. So what is it that Paul wants God to do? That is what prayer is, right? It's asking God to do something. Well, he asked them, verse nine, to fill the Colossians with the knowledge of his will. Well, that's an interesting request, isn't it? That he's asking for this church. If we remember that the occasion of his writing, the occasion of these prayers is that there's a false teaching that has arisen, Paul might just as well have prayed that the false teachers would would turn from their uh, wicked understanding or that they uh, would come to saving faith uh, or that they would run out of town for that matter. Um, But that's not what he prays for. He asks for the church to be filled with knowledge, the knowledge of God's will. Just because they're Christians doesn't mean they have enough knowledge to combat the problem. That could be a little bit um, scary or frustrating. We don't automatically have what it takes to resist being taken in by falsehood just by virtue of us saying, I'm just going to follow Jesus and I'm going to live my life for him. No, there's much more involved in that, in knowing uh, and being able to discern falsehood. So we need to search the scripture and study and pray to God for understanding. And so many Christians, I think, are cold to growing in knowledge They're turned off by study. Studies, well, there's frustrating words. So what in the world do you think will keep you from error if you don't do those things? Calvin wrote, those who think that they've already attained everything that is worthy of being known, despise and disdain everything further that's presented to them. Don't be that. The church is not called to be that. This is still from verse nine. Paul asks, that they may be filled, that you may be filled. That's passive. It means he's speaking to the Colossians, but he isn't saying they're going to accomplish this on, them, on their own, on, by themselves. This filling is going to happen to them. It's something God is going to have to do. And he's asking for a specific kind of knowledge that they should be filled with, the knowledge of God's will. 
The word for knowledge here is epignosis. It means full knowledge, knowledge that's precise and and correct. So Paul means that the Colossians need to fully know this revealed will of God for them. They need to be filled with the knowledge of of what God has revealed and understand it. What does that look like? Well, again, it's a spiritual thing. It's not to know whether God wants your sports team to win or whether you should use gas with ethanol or any of those kind of things. That's not what we mean when we say discerning the will of God. We're talking about being able to discern, being able to understand what is pleasing, sensing the difference between truth and falsehood. So again, in verse 9, God's knowledge or the knowledge of God's will comes by way of spiritual wisdom. It's not fleshly. It isn't from self. It doesn't lend itself to pride. It's not worldly. It's not the way that the world reasons or thinks. It's an insight to spiritual truth. It gives the ability to perceive spiritual values. Again, distinguishing truth from falsehood, right from wrong. It's a spiritual understanding. The word is putting together or or intelligence. It's the ability to apply spiritual principle to practical situations. So understanding what God's will is uh, may not mean choosing which which gas to buy at the pump, but, but it might. It might in the sense that God may be calling us to, uh, to live within our means and understand what's right means I have to make decisions and I'm going to have to ask what is, what is pleasing to the Lord. A question that came to mind is um, what would the Lord have his, his man or his woman do? I remember um, just really being taken by uh, a man in this body uh, who's uh, moved to uh, another location now, but I remember hearing him ask that question. Um, we were confronted with a a bit of a moral choice, a moral dilemma, and we talked about some of the options. And I remember him saying, that's what I think the Lord would have his man do. And I just paused and thought about that. That really is an interesting way to think about the things that come in life that are practical decisions where we need to make application of God's wisdom. Oftentimes it's not yes or no. Oftentimes it's what's good versus what's better versus what's best. What would really be most pleasing to the Lord? So Paul asked God to fill the Colossians with this kind of knowledge. Well, what does, what does Paul want the Colossians to do? Well, that really brings us to the purpose of what he's asking this for. He's asked God to fill them with the knowledge of his will for what purpose? He tells us now in verse 10, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. I couldn't have, couldn't have asked John to sing a better choir piece today. I want to walk worthy. I want to walk worthy. Order my steps, Lord. This idea that God's will is going to be revealed, that his knowledge is going to be distributed to them. Why? So that they can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So this is the end for which he has asked for their being filled with knowledge, to walk in a manner worthy. It's... um, It's not worthy of him in the sense that we earn his favor, certainly not our salvation. It means that because we are saved, we live as best we can to bring him pleasure. Uh, I ran across an article that got me thinking a little bit about worthy, the word worthy. Um, At a Christie's auction in New York, there was a ruby ring that was being auctioned off. And you know a piece of jewelry is really something special when it has its own name. 
right? It's not just a stone or a ruby. It has a, it has a proper name. And this, this particular um, stone is called the Jubilee Ruby. Uh, and the ad for Christie's uh, called it worthy of a king. Worthy of a king. So that, again, that word worthy at nearly 16 carats and set in gold and platinum in the ring that holds it, surrounded by diamonds, it sold for a record-setting $14.1 million. And to say that gem was worthy of king turns out to be no exaggeration because until the middle of the 19th century, only the sovereign of Burma or an individual approved by him would have been allowed the privilege of possessing it. It, it was just a magnificent gemstone. The ring goes on the king's hand. There's a fittingness to the relationship. The ring and the rank match each other. You see that, that correlation? It's not so much that the person is worthy. It's the, the office of, this, of the king now is authorized to have this uh, lavish jewel. The, the word for us, the word that... that that comes to us as worthy means suitable or or comparable. And the idea is that its weight matches. And so there's a balance between the one thing, Christ, and our walk, the other. That creates an ethic, doesn't it? It creates an oughtness. I ought to walk in this way. I ought to do these things and not these things. I ought to have these attitudes and not these other attitudes because of the weight of Christ, the worthiness of Christ. And so it's not that we can ever earn or deserve what Christ has done for us. It's wanting to walk in a fitting way, a suitable way, a way that matches the one who saved us. This is what Paul wants the Colossians to strive for. They are bound to Christ in their salvation. They belong to him and and he to them. And he wants them to live in this fitting way for the walk to match what the Savior has done for them. The Brahman commentary says it this way, we are never worthy to be saved, but we strive to become worthier of him who saved us from our unworthiness. The second part of that phrase is important too, fully pleasing or well-pleasing to him. The literal translation of that phrase is unto all desire to please him. That really is the, the question. Paul's prayer is that the Colossians would live their lives in a way that's fitting for their Savior, that their greatest desire would be to please him. What if every Christian made their decisions that way? Okay, I have this decision to make here. What would bring the most pleasure to Jesus? What a a thought. Well, thirdly, we need to talk about what it is that, the Paul, that Paul wants them to do in the sense of what it means to live worthily. And I want to give you four key ways that they walk worthy. So let's, let's look at that. Um, and I hope you can see a little bit the diagram of this, uh, this long prayer now. Paul is asking God to do one thing, to fill them with the knowledge of his will. And he's asking for the purpose that they would walk worthily. And now the rest of this is going to tell us what that looks like or that work, walking worthily looks like and involves these following things. First, bearing fruit in every good work. Verse 10. We get so nervous when people start talking about works. 
Well, the Bible talks a great deal about doing good works, and while we're not saved by them, and that is an important distinction, we are supposed to do them. We are supposed to do them and enjoy them. It's among the highest praise given to believers in the New Testament that they have a reputation of doing works that are full of goodness. In fact, Paul tells the Ephesian believers that they were created in Christ for the very purpose of doing good works and that God prepared those opportunities beforehand so that they could do them. So doing good works, Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's pleasing to God when we do good works. So do them. You see a good thing, an opportunity to do a good thing, do it, do it with joy and know that it pleases Christ who saved you. Secondly, increasing in the knowledge of God, still in verse 10. We've already seen Paul pray for this, and here he's naming it as another specific way that the believers in Colossae can please God. This is not a call to know Bible trivia. It's not a call to simple and useless facts that are never really applied to the Christian life. This is spiritual knowledge. It's being able to recognize spiritual truth, applying it to life, discerning right right from wrong and falsehood from truth. It's bringing God's revelation to bear in our decision making. So how do you do that? I, I think the spiritual disciplines have a lot to do with this. It's, it's reading, listening, studying, memorizing, meditating on the scripture. It's praying, fasting, worshiping, spending time in silence and solitude. All of these things uh, can increase our spiritual discernment and our knowledge of God and his will. It's not possible apart from him moving, but we get to participate in those things. Thirdly, to be strengthened with all power in verse 11. This is just an amazing and encouraging thing that Paul prays for these believers. Part of walking worthily, part of being pleasing to him is to be strengthened by him. God wants us to be strengthened. The word is dunamis. It means power or ability. And the source is God himself. We see in verse 11, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Boy, that's a thought. That we would have power and strength according to his glorious might. In other words, it's limitless, his strength, his, his might, his strength. They're unquantifiable. Now, I can just tell you, I, I read that uh, at face value, and I, I, I read it like a guy. I see Thor and his hammer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be strong. I'm going to be unimaginable. I'm going to be a warrior. That's really not the context here if we read on. Look at the objective of the strength. It's for all endurance and patience with joy. That's what the strength is for. It's, it's God's pleasure when we stand in his strength specifically for the purpose of enduring hardship and testing and trial. There's no hero cape on that, is there? That's exactly what he's calling us to do and exactly what he offers his strength for. He gives it to us that we would be able to undergo challenges and tests and trials with patience and moreover to exhibit joy while we're being patient. That's the key, right? Patience is one thing, but to have joy through that test and trial is quite another That's exactly what Paul is praying for the Colossians, that they're going to get this immeasurable power and strength from God according to his glorious might. Why? So that they'll be able to stand through the test, so that they'll have joy in the trial. When we stand in his strength in that way, we're pleasing to him. 
And then finally, giving thanks to God the Father in verse 12. It's really not a surprise, is it, that being thankful to God the Father would be pleasing to him. And it's true that we could be thankful to the Father for everything that Paul has prayed for so far. But I think Paul is speaking to the fact that none of these things would be possible if it weren't for God justifying us. We've mentioned a little bit already about a sanctifying work where we get to participate along in the spiritual disciplines. But Paul is now talking about God making us worthy, justifying us. And we see that where he says, giving thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So again, he qualified us. It's not um, it's not the case that we do all of these things and then we somehow become qualified. Uh, that's not the way that it works. We don't become worthy in that sense. We're compelled to live a life of thankfulness because we're not qualified and he has made us qualified. So to conclude, I want to tie this last part of Paul's prayer back to this main idea that is to walk in a manner worthy Paul prays that the Colossians would live out thankfulness to God because he's the one who's qualified them to share in salvation, which is the inheritance of the saints. God has saved them. He's given them a new identity. The old has passed away, and now they're in this relationship with Christ. They're bound up with Christ, and they have taken his very name when they were saved by him, and they've begun to follow him. And the heart of Paul's prayer is that these believers would now own that new identity fully and completely, that they would strive, that they would follow hard, that they would run a race. Why? Because the one who gave them this new identity is worthy of such a life. So we learn a lot about how to pray and a lot about what the church, what believers are supposed to be and and do. The church is supposed to be full of people who are doing these things, striving to live in a manner worthy of the one who saved us. But so many times we live in the status quo. And this would really be the challenge, I think, uh, for us Uh, today. We're so easily distracted and and so easily focused on uh, the world and its pursuits. And as I mentioned before, the tyranny of the here and now that demands our attention. I think there's something to be said for shaking off a false sense of contentment. There's a godly contentment, to be sure, a spiritual contentment that what God gives is sufficient. It's enough. That's a good contentment. But I think there's a a laziness that comes on us so often where we're not really pursuing more. We're not really running hard after Christ. We're just too content and too satisfied. How I am now is good enough. So Paul's prayer tells us that There's much more that the church is in need of. Even once we're saved, we need to ask for knowledge of his will. We need to ask for the opportunity and the ability to do and participate in good works. We need his power, his strength to stand through tests and trials with patience and joy. And we need him to prompt us to increase our thanksgiving. So I just want to remind us the status quo is not what he saved us for. And I I think if we really examined our our prayers, that's what we would find. We're very content with the place that we are. And we're just asking God to fix up or patch up the places where we're a little bit discontent. And there's so much more than that. 
He saved us for His glory. And that we would glorify Him by living out a new identity. That we would strive. That we would work at being well-pleasing to Him. And in the light of all He's done for us, in the light of Him making us qualified, He's worthy of such a life. He's worthy that we would live in a way that brings Him pleasure. So there's a couple ways that you might be called to respond from this challenge today. And I don't know which one the Lord would put on your heart, but I'm sure uh, that he will show you. Maybe it's that you've never come to a saving faith and that you've, um, you've never made a commitment to Christ and followed after him. Maybe you want to know the confidence that's portrayed in this, that we could, that we could know our assurance is in him, that we would know for certain that we belong to him. And that confidence that's portrayed here can be yours in Christ today. And I can share that hope with you. The believers who are here would love to share that hope with you. So if that's you, if you've not made that commitment today, that would be the first thing that I would call you to, is to respond to the good news, that if you would follow hard after Christ, if you would repent of your sin and trust him alone, that that confidence could be yours. Secondly, Maybe it's just a conviction that you've been too long without really desiring to live a life worthy of Christ. I think that one is pretty applicable to most of us, that there are some things that are not pleasing to him that we really need to lay down and put off. And there are other things that we know would be pleasing to him that we just haven't been disciplined to pursue, and we need to do that. If that's you today, I would invite you, come and lay those things down at the Savior's feet and make commitments to him today. Maybe today you just feel convicted about your prayer life. That's really been the topic. That your prayers look so far into the pages of Scripture and we look at what Paul's praying here and say, my prayers don't look anything like this. And I just, I need to restructure the way I'm spending time in prayer. And I need to refocus my efforts, not not to stop praying for the things that are in the here and now, but to pray for more than that. So there are ways that we can help you make that commitment as well, to recenter on keeping a spiritual focus Whatever the need is, I would invite you to come and meet with the Lord or stay right where you are and do that. But we're going to seek his will for us during this, uh, this response time. So I'm going to invite the praise team and John to come and prepare to lead us. Let's bow together in prayer and we'll respond in faith as the Lord uh, gives us wisdom to do so. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray, um, Lord, that you would convict us and um, move freely in this body uh, that's gathered here this morning. No doubt, Lord, there are some who are here that do not know you in a saving way. We pray for them. Lord, would you move in their hearts in such a way that they would repent and trust you alone for salvation and, and know the joy of new life in Christ. For others, it may be that our prayer life just simply needs an overhaul and we've not really thought very diligently about what our prayers really ought to be, and we've not really juxtaposed them with the pages of Scripture to see uh, how they measure up. Lord, I pray that you would do a revitalizing work in the way your people pray, myself included, that we would take seriously the call to pray for more than just the fires in front of us, but that we would pray uh, for wonderful uh, spiritual things, not just temporal things, um, that we would be focused on kingdom things, uh, not worldly things. And then, Lord, maybe just the, um, the worthiness of our lives to follow hard after you 
uh, in a way that's fitting of the God who saved us. Lord, if, if there are those who are struggling with that today, Lord, would you move uh, in such a way that you would convict them, but also give them uh, the help and encouragement and tools and accountability needed to follow hard after you and to pursue that life of worthiness, for you are worthy, Lord. So move, we pray that you would have freedom, Lord, that the Spirit would come and convict and minister during this time in the body. And uh, Lord, that as we sing, we would truly have our hearts set on what you want from each of us. We pray this now in Jesus' name, amen.